Okay, what's today? Today is September 29th. And this is, uh, I guess this is the sixth lecture in the philosophy of computation class. And today I want to talk about biology and computation. And uh, yeah, for our background here, this is, uh, we've got Kapow running, there's a rule file called inkpaint.cas. And if you've read the little story that introduces that chapter, inkpaint, it's about, uh, about, it's about a woman who makes paint that looks like this. It's this sort of dream of having colored paint. How could you make paint be, not colored, but patterned? How could you make paint be patterned? And uh, there are these reactions called the Belasov-Jabotinsky rule that generate these patterns. Um, but I'm not going to talk about those patterns first. I want to start at the beginning of the chapter. So uh, to begin with, uh, what is life? Well, we think of life, at least I think it's reasonable to say life is three different things. Uh, Self-reproduction, morphogenesis, and homeostasis. Now, most people will know what self-reproduction means. That means being able to make a copy of yourself. Actually, maybe I'll turn this off for a little while because I don't like that buzz that it makes. Uh, let me just yank it out of the wall. Okay. So, yeah, self-reproduction, that's pretty clear. We'll say a little bit about that. The, uh, the computational aspect there has to do with DNA being really a lot like computer code. It's almost surprising how much it is like computer code. Then uh, the next thing that I mentioned, morpho morphogenesis, that's the process by which a plant or an animal grows its form. And that's uh, an interesting kind of computation. And that, uh, those things that I just had on the screen, the Jabotinsky scrolls, they're kind of an example of a computation that creates shapes that does morphogenesis. Uh, the third thing I mentioned, homeostasis, that's another thing that characterizes living systems, that they repair themselves. Uh, they keep themselves in good order. If you're out of breath, you breathe. If you're too cold, you get warm. If you're hungry, you eat. If it's raining, you go inside. You do these things to take care of yourself. This is one of the big differences between present-day machines and people, because machines Computers have very, very little homeostasis. They break, and then they, they don't know how to fix themselves. They do that a lot. It's, uh, it's getting a little bit better, but still, still not really there. So life, uh, <laughs> leaving aside uh, more kinds of uh, gauzy or spiritualistic kinds of ideas about what life might be. If we had a system that was self-reproducing, that morphogen that grows its own body, uh, that's something also that machines tend not to do, actually like grow their own body. That's a really nice thing about life. And then maintain themselves homeostasis. If we had some things like that, we'd be pretty well inclined to say that they're alive. And we haven't, people haven't, we haven't created anything like that. At present, the only life that we have around here is, uh, it's all sort of the same kind of life. 
That's one of the curious things about Earth. Every every living form on Earth uh, uses DNA. I guess maybe viruses don't quite use DNA. Well, they sort of yeah they sponge off of the cell's DNA, so in a parasitic way they use it. But other than that, all the plants, all the animals, they're all the, using the same idea. So could there, we imagine there would be other kinds of life in the universe, other things that would self-reproduce, would grow their own bodies and keep themselves in repair. Um, but we haven't run into them yet. But it could be that there actually are some, there, maybe there's some things in nature that if we looked at it in the right way, already satisfy those things. Um, I think we, I was mentioned maybe last week or the week before, this idea that maybe sunspots are alive. That's this science fictional idea. Okay. Or maybe tornadoes could be thought of as alive because they, they split, uh, they grow their own shape, they, uh, they kind of preserve themselves. But it's a, it would be a curious kind of life. Anyway, um, getting back to the, the DNA thing, the self-reproduction, it's, it's pretty easy. See, thanks to DNA, self-reproduction is sort of easy. Because DNA is, is, is famous for the fact it's a double helix. It's like this ladder. And uh, when DNA wants to divide, uh, it splits down the rungs. Now, on, on these rungs, it's actually two long chains of molecules, and they're made of what they call bases. And each base has another base that it likes to attach to. I think there's four kinds of bases, called C-A-G-T, I think. And uh, each one has one other that it likes to attach to, that sort of fits it. So we have this long chain of, uh, you could simplify, just think of a long chain of zeros and ones. and Every zero attracts a one, every one attracts a zero. And then, so there's this sort of mirror image chain. Then if you cut those chains in two, and you have a lot of zeros and ones floating around, they'll hook in, and each of them will build up its mirror image. And you'll end up with two copies of the DNA. So this is very computational. And even more computational, DNA, uh, it spins off these short pieces called uh, mRNA messenger RNA, uh, little swatches are copied of the DNA, and those float around in the cell, and then there's these things that are like Turing machine heads, ribosomes, and they read along these little stretches, these gene-sized stretches of DNA, and they assemble proteins. So DNA acts to, it divides itself, and then it serves, it basically a whole lot of recipes for making proteins, and then the proteins, uh, they fold up and they do all these different things in your cells. They act like enzymes. They, uh, they might make the skin of the cell. They might make muscle fibers, uh, hormones, all sorts of things. So um, it's an amazing process that it all kind of works together. Now, one thing to keep in mind, um, if you just had the DNA by itself, the reproduction wouldn't work. The DNA has to be inside a cell. That's an aspect that sometimes we don't stress enough. 
and the cell has its own sort of system going on in it, and it's called an autocatalytic network. It's a bunch of different, there's different, a whole maybe a few hundred kinds of proteins in a cell. I'm actually not sure what the number is, how many, maybe even a thousand. And they're like, some of them are working to make other proteins. And you've got this network where some parts are making other parts, they're making the first part. That's called autocatalytic, meaning that it catalyzes itself, that it's, it encourages itself to keep going. It's this sort of loop. And then because all the, that good stuff is in there, the DNA molecule is able to get interpreted. Okay? It's sort of like if you just have a computer program, it doesn't do anything unless you put it inside a computer. The DNA wouldn't really do anything unless it's inside a cell. And, uh, okay. So that's, it's, it's very computational and that's, uh, that's one of the, the things, it's a sort of strong point for the universal automatist notion that nature is a computation. Now, actually, nature is not a computation. Nature is a whole lot of different computations acting at different scales. Well, let's see, what was I about to say? I forgot. Uh, oh, yeah, I was saying, oh, yeah, I wanted to say the thing about DNA that, so those people, there's, been, there's actually, it's sort of interesting these days, there's a lot of debate that you're reading about in the newspapers. They've got this court case in Pennsylvania, because uh, there's some people, they don't like the idea of evolution. I always wonder why don't people attack relativity theory or set theory or quantum mechanics? I guess the reason is because the idea of evolution is, is fairly easy to understand. I mean, if you can't even understand what special relativity is, you're not going to say it's against God's will. Okay? But evolution, you can kind of get the picture. You say, well, you know, we started out with this sea of chemicals, and then uh, bacteria evolved, and so on. Moved up the scale. We ended up with us, the crown of creation. And uh, then, that, for whatever reason, that annoys some people. And then, uh, you know, there's this court case that they're saying, well, we have to teach what they call intelligent design, which is, you know, says that uh, evolution couldn't have happened. It's too complicated. Uh, God must have reached in. And they're really gung-ho intelligent design people. Say that God made the earth 6,000 years ago. Which, <laughs> you know, this flies in the face of most of you know, geological science and so on, but for whatever reason, people want to believe that. Now, um, when you look at how complicated the, the cell is, all these, these nested together autocolytic reactions and, and the DNA working, and there being the ribosomes in place, it does seem like almost a chicken and an egg thing. Because for the cell to be there, for the DNA to live in, you've got to you already have to have the cell, but where did you get the cell? Because the DNA reproduced and made new ones. So it is, but people have thought quite a bit about it, and there are ways you can kind of build up to getting a cell. Now actually, once you get, once you get to a bacteria, 
that, it seems to me that's the hard part, getting a bacterium. Once you get there, getting from a bacterium to us isn't that hard, uh, computationally speaking. It's more like getting the first step was, was actually the hard part. And that took, probably took longer. Uh, Earth's been here for about a billion years. And the higher forms of life have only been here for you know, a tiny fraction of that amount of time. Like most of the time, uh, Earth is just screwing around trying to make a, one of those germs that lives in your intestines. Okay, that was what most of, the, most of the energy was expended on. Now one thing about DNA, uh, another thing that kind of confuses people sometimes, they say, well, DNA is a blueprint for my body. Therefore, if I could look at the DNA, would it be the case that I could tell where every hair is on my head and where every freckle is and exactly what my personality is like? And that's not the case, okay? Um, it's sort of like some of these cellular automata rules I've showed you, like these rules with the scrolls that you see. Um, the rules themselves, they're sort of the DNA of the system, but the rules are really simple. The rules will be about oh, a dozen real number parameters. And the same parameters are in every cell. And I seed this thing with pretty much anything. You, just give it some, you can just seed it with one pixel, or you can seed it with a bath of pixels, some random input. And we do get a certain amount of random input from the environment. You know, there's uh, things that are sort of buffeting us while we're growing. But uh, the thing, you end up with more or less the same kinds of spiral patterns. But you can't say, did the DNA say that the freckles should be here on my cheek and not here on my cheek? The DNA didn't say that. Okay? The DNA did say that your skin, it's possible for your skin to form freckles. Okay? It put in place a sort of reaction diffusion rule. And later I'm going to talk some more about reaction diffusion. But it's not an exact blueprint. And so then it's maybe not so miraculous that your body could grow. So DNA is more in the way of being a tweak parameter than a blueprint. Um, now the shapes, so now uh, I'm sort of going to segue. I was talking about reproduction. I'm going to start getting into morphogenesis now. And uh, a lot of these shapes are just things that nature likes to make. Now, Alan Turing was the first person to sort of realize this about natural forms. He, uh, this is not even that well known a fact. Uh, Turing is most famous for the Turing machine. Okay, he, he proved an important theorem uh, early on about computability. He showed that certain kinds of problems can't be solved by any computer. And uh, he was also active, I think maybe I've mentioned this before, he was active, he was a code breaker in World War II. And then uh, one of the last things he did, he got interested in, in morphogenesis. And he looked at systems uh, that are called, well, there are different names for these systems. Sometimes they're called reaction diffusion systems. And uh, there's some that's also called activator inhibitor systems. Uh, reaction diffusion is a more general term. 
What reaction diffusion system means, it means that you have certain chemicals, and Turing calls them morphogens, morph as in shape, and gen as in generate. So chemicals that create form, morphogens, they might be pigments, or they might be things that make your skin stiffer or, or less stiff, more like a bone or more like muscle. So you have morphogens, and the morphogens react with each other, and the diffusion part is they diffuse from cell to cell. So we're actually looking at tissue here as a cellular automaton, and that's appropriate because your tissues are made of cells. It's, they're a little bit different from these computer cellular automata we look at, because the computer cellular automata are on this real precise grid, and we aren't adding and removing cells as time goes on. In a living tissue, it's arranged uh, in a somewhat messy way, and their cells are splitting. But the, the one thing we know that we kind of learned from studying computation is if the kinds of patterns that appear in computations are not actually all that dependent on the specific details. There's sort of only certain shapes that computations like to make. And uh, the shapes that we see in our kind of rigid rectangular CAs are pretty much the same as the kinds of shapes you'll see in these more globby tissue-like CAs. Another thing, of course, is tissues are three-dimensional. And uh, there hasn't been much work uh, a little while ago, Ethan, you were saying, you know, all the C good CAs have been found. Ephraim. Ephraim. Right. Okay. Uh, and people really haven't touched the 3D CAs. And the reason being, up until, well, really up until now, the computational abilities at our disposal really weren't up to looking at CAs. But CAs, uh, the thing is, they're very much a case where you're looking at unpredictable computation. And if you write down a rule for a CA, you pretty much have to run it a few thousand generations to figure out what it's going to be like. Yeah, I think that's the problem with the field. The way I, the way I see it right now is that like, you can have a piece of the software and you kind of like randomly... Like, you try some program. People just kind of like randomly throwing in words and seeing what happens. It seems like a, it's like, a, I'd rather that that, that there was some downward or something than before I Well, that's, I mean, I think that's natural for you. You're, you're, you know, you're probably gifted at mathematics, so it's more natural to want to prove things. And, you know, then to, there is something very empirical about CA research. But, uh, I mean, you're, you're just, but it's not completely random. You do you have ideas for things, and then you say, well, let's. I wonder what this rule would look like. So you can go. I mean, the best rules I've found where I would go and think about something for a while. I mean, you can just press the randomize button, but when you're doing that, you're always just randomizing within a certain uh, a certain state space. And then the, what makes it fun is when you think of some different state space, some sort of different kind of rule that you haven't looked at before. But it is true that I was always a little uncomfortable as a pure mathematician. I was happy when I got to become a computer scientist. Because then I could, you know, I could play with a machine and, and look at stuff. And even though, like, if you do a proof and you have a hole in it, then you don't have anything. 
and if you have a computer program and there's something wrong with it, maybe you just have a, a feature. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, with a computer program, it can fail to compile and it can crash, and that's very frustrating, too. Really, the most forgiving field is writing science fiction. <laughs> or you, it always works. Yeah? I was uh, Googling um people doing a brain simulation well there was an article in scientific american about a year ago about some people doing i think they were were they at carnegie mellon they were they were they were looking at neural nets and then trying to make neural nets work a little bit better and they were using an approach that looked kind of like CAs. Oh, cellular autonomy used to simulate neural nets? Well, that sounds good. Well, one thing about cellular automata, uh, sometimes people, I mean, it seems evident that at least one part of the future of computation is going to have to do with parallel computation or concurrent computation. And uh, all the programming languages that we're familiar with, they're, they're very much not like that. They're, you're describing a single thread. You know, it's a single processor program. And you can spawn off a few threads and uh, get a little bit of parallelism. But you're still working with a sort of serial paradigm. And the cellular automata are really a parallel paradigm from the ground up. We're saying we've got this space of cells. It's either a line, or it's a, a plane, or it's a three-dimensional glob. And we're having all of the cells are being updated simultaneously. And it actually isn't always that important for rules that the cells be in exact lockstep. Ordinarily, we idealize and we have the cells updated in exact lockstep simultaneity. But a lot of these, like these Jabotinsky rules, they would work all right. Uh, I haven't tested this, but I think this is true. I could put in maybe up to, update each cell at any given update with maybe only a probability of 0.8. And so not all of them would be being updated every time. And I think. Uh, I think most of these, these things would still come out the same. Um, anyway, it's a good paradigm for parallel computation. Anyway, getting back to uh, where I was a minute ago, I was talking about morphogenesis. And let's turn this, the screen on again for a minute. I wanted to show you some. Uh, you want to this? Oh, yeah, I unplugged it so it wouldn't make noise. You know, when you turn it off, the fan keeps running. Okay. I feel like I went down a stack of things, and I'm coming back up the stack. I can't quite remember the whole stack. Uh, anyway, um, so we're talking about, oh yeah, that's right. I was talking about Turing. I was talking about um, morphogenesis. I was talking about reaction diffusion. And uh, the idea in reaction diffusion, as I say, is we take, we idealize this by taking a cellular automaton. We have a lot of cells. And each cell will have 
one or two real numbers in it. And these real numbers correspond to what we might call morphogens. And uh, let's look at this rule here. Uh, this is called the hodgepodge rule. And uh, I'm going to use the 3D control and press the flip button so it looks flat. The default for the this 2D as I zoom in is, is they show them as a little landscape. Now this rule has a nice property. It converges really rapidly. Um, so we can go and seed it randomly. And uh, I think I might have demoed this one for you before. And we find these scrolls are forming. Now this is a rule where uh, there's actually only one morphogen in this guy. And what happens, though, is the morphogen decays. So the morphogen value is being spontaneously created in every cell. It's getting larger and larger and larger. And then when it reaches a maximum value, it drops off to zero. And there's also an averaging step. Almost all of these rules have an averaging step, meaning that each cell averages itself with its neighbor. So here we have a single number in each cell, a single morphogen number. And each update, the morphogen is average of the neighbors. The morphogen is increased a little bit. And uh, when the morphogen reaches a certain maximum value, it drops off to zero. Now, there's one other thing about the way it's increased. It's increased in a sort of funky, nonlinear fashion. Uh, and that uh, is enough to make these, these, these spirals emerge. Uh, so it's kind of amazing. Again, you could say, we could also give this thing a really simple seed. I could seed it with, uh, oh, let's just seed it with a single point, okay? And uh, so here, this is like fully a deterministic system. Notice I could start it over again, and you'll see the same, exact same patterns are going to emerge. In. It has a nice mandala-like appearance. Uh, it would probably wrap better if the screen were square. The screen is uh, rectangular. And uh, we get these nice shapes emerging. And again, you could say, well, gee, how could evolution ever create this intricate of pattern? And it's not really the evolution that's creating it. It's the fact that you're looking at a network of cells that are carrying out a reaction diffusion rule. And this is just a pattern that that particular kind of computation likes to make. It's not, uh, it's not like that dot coded up for all this. I just started with a dot. And this rule is a fairly simple rule. Um, I won't give you the gory details, so. though. Now, uh, one of the other rules, let's take a look at uh, this one here is a more uh, classic reaction diffusion rule. This is what is invented by a guy called Winfrey. And this one, I think, takes a pretty long time to converge. Uh, let's start out with some random crap and see what happens. I think it'll take a little bit, a little while for the, the scrolls to come together. But this is one where we have two different quantities. In each cell, there's a, what I call an activator and an inhibitor. And uh, there's certain ways that these interact. Uh, in each cell, there's a certain a certain amount of activator and inhibitor are forming spontaneously. Uh, the activator, its increase is, is sort of held back by the inhibitor. And uh, but it takes this guy a while to converge. 
One thing I found that helps it is if I drop a few raindrops onto it. So if I go and I press the ding button on the world menu, and so just rain into this little puddle. Oh, there we go. Now we've got our first scrolls happening. Okay. And there, ding, you know, it's like, again, where was the DNA for the scroll pattern? Well, it wasn't there. That's something that this kind of system likes to make. Okay. And they look, again, I always think about life when I see these things because they look so much like jellyfish or mushrooms or they, they really look like they're alive. One thing that they don't do that I wish they did, and this would be a good rule for you to discover, Ephraim, they, they don't crawl around like gliders. They tend to stay in one place, just scrolling. Now, if they swam around, that would be really, really nice. Uh, that's one of the things uh, that's, I like to say that these rules are class four because they're not, uh, well, certainly not, they don't die out. Uh, but you might say, are they periodic? This, I'm, I'm sometimes I get slightly anxious that it's periodic. But the thing is, it seems like if you, if you focus on one of the details and watch, it's, it's not actually ever exactly repeating, and they are sort of growing. So uh, I don't think they're actually periodic. But it would be nice if they were like gliders moving around. That's something. I've never been able to find gliders in Jabotinsky fields. Let's rain on it a little bit more. Huh? Oh, would that make it move? Well, and that, yeah, that's not really fair. <laughs> We'd like them to move without my having to do anything. By the way, this is showing the, the activator. You can use the view control and you can say, well, the real world does have gradients, but things will move even without it. Okay. So see, there's actually two substances in there. This shows the inhibitor substance and this is the activator substance. When it's red like that, that means it's maxed out. It's at a maximum value. Uh, to make this clear, we can go and look at the, uh, instead of looking at the picture flat, we can go and look at it uh, as a, a sheet. Okay. So that's, uh, I had this one really good student who helped me with this, and he, uh, he put it into 3D like this. Uh, Michael Ling. He's really a great, great programmer. And uh, I always thought it'd be nice to have a surfing game using these things. When you look at these Jamatinsky scrolls in 3D, it'd be, uh, or like why not a maze? I and mean, when you do most computer games, it's just some boring maze that they design. They're so uptight. I mean, why, why don't they just let the maze evolve? Because, I mean, these are tunnels. You could run around in there. Things could be chasing you. And like the doors are opening and closing. And uh, there's really very, that's something that I think is a little bit lacking in computer games. Anyway, this is the, the activator. If we look at the in inhibitor, uh, 
So you notice the inhibitors maxed out. It's sort of reaching a maximum value. This is one thing when you do a continuous value cellular automaton, you have to enforce maximum and minimum values. Because if you've ever written, well not ever, if you've written a number of computer programs, whenever you have a variable and it's being subjected to all kinds of forces, it's very easy for the variable to run away and get really, really big. And then if you, if you don't do something, you'll get an overflow error after a while. So what I do here is I clamp. I don't let the, it get bigger than that. And that's not entirely unnatural because in your cell, there's just a certain kind of maximum intensity that you can reach. Anyway, uh, so this is this guy. So again, uh, we're looking at these uh, morphogenetic patterns emerging. Now, uh, there's another one here. This is a this is called the logistic double rule, and uh, this guy arises in a totally different way. It uses uh, the logistic double DLL, and uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Let me use the let me flip it for a second. Okay, this one is uh, pretty fast. Now let's. Uh, Let's try randomizing the world with this and see how long it takes uh, for this guy to converge. Now, what we're modeling here, rather than thinking in terms of a tissue or the reaction diffusion, here we're thinking about two populations. We're thinking about foxes and rabbits. So you're not looking at a kidney here or a slice of your brain. You're looking down, you're looking at a, like a Google map, you're looking at neighborhoods, and uh, each, uh, each cell, you have a certain density of one kind of population there and another kind of population. Again, foxes and rabbits would be one way to think of it. And uh, as we'll talk about in eco ecology, it turns out we again get the Jabotinsky scroll emerging from the interaction of these two species. That's kind of neat. Um, okay. So let me... Uh, say a little more about this. The, uh, so I, I talked about morphogenesis, and I said, uh, I pointed out that we can have things like Jabotinsky scrolls emerging when you have reaction diffusion in tissues. Uh, another thing, there's a good book about this called How the Leopard Got His Spots. Uh, you can think about, if you, if you look at, for instance, the, the stubble, on your chin or the hairs on your chin, these are also something that emerges uh, from reaction diffusion. Let me uh, actually load an example of that right now. Um, curing patterns. These are uh, not not all of the Turing rules generate. Jabotinsky scrolls. Like our tissues generally look like Jabotinsky scrolls. If you ever look at like micrographs of pieces of brain tissue or lung tissue, you tend to be mostly seeing Jabotinsky scrolls. But if you're looking at things like the surface of an animal, or if you're looking at, you might see like how is it that certain cells on your head decide to grow hair and certain ones don't? And uh, 
here's an example of this. Uh, this is a reaction diffusion rule that converges to dots. Now, I could randomize this. Okay. But before I do that, let, let me show you a 3D view of it. Okay, so let's flip this. Uh, let's look at a sheet. And see, notice what you've got there. So this is the, the pattern, uh, Turing's dots with pattern. And we see these, uh, these things like spikes sticking up from the surface. This is, again, it's a lot, if you were to look closely, like at my chin, you could think of this as being the whiskers, okay? Or if you were to look at your arm, you could think of those as being the hands. Huh? Right, the height is the amount of the activator in that cell. And I could, if I wanted to, I could display instead the amount of inhibitor in that cell. And that would be also, they tend to sort of be on top of each other. Now this, you might say nothing's happening here, this is dead. Well, it's not quite dead. Uh, it's, it's doing something like slow, but it's not doing much anymore. It's sort of settled down. It's really a class one computation. It's reached the, uh, the end point of what it's going to do. So let me flip it now and uh, put some random stuff in it. So now I've randomized it. And uh, actually, it's, it's a little more fun to watch it if you go to the 3D view. And uh, at first, you're not seeing any whiskers at all. So this is, again, we could think about, you've got some, you could think about, like you've got, you're this embryo, and, and how are given cells deciding to be hairs? And we've got these two morphogens, these two chemicals that are in the cells. They're diffusing. Each cell is averaging itself for the neighbors. And the morphogens are promoting and inhibiting each other. Now, the, the parameters in this rule, if I open up, uh, there's a, a window called user dialog. And this will show the rules, uh, a bunch of parameters here. And th these are the parameters that specify this particular rule. It's using the 2D activator inhibitor saturation 9.dll. That's something that a little uh, outside DLL that I wrote. And let's see, what was the name of this rule? Just You can note it down in case you want to run it at home. It was called 2D, uh, it was called 2D Turing Spots AI parentheses pattern dot CA. Yeah. Okay, now so far we're still not seeing those peaks. It takes a while to converge. Okay, some of these things take a while. So uh, let's just flip it over to the 2D view. That runs a little bit faster. And uh, when it starts to look like something's happening, I'll go back to the 3D view. So again, uh, these are computations there. See, the whiskers are starting to form. That's what those are going to be. So if we flip back to the 3D view, there they are. They're popping up. Okay. So that's, uh, and at first they tend to be these sort of lines, and then what will happen, it gets more and more peaky. And so this is, this is satisfying because we have these sort of large-scale patterns are emerging from a computation running in a bunch of tissues. So again, this is an example of why, or the whole idea of intelligent design, it's sort of, it's, mis, it's failing to understand that nature likes to make patterns. It's not, 
people say, well, if, you know, if God hadn't put animals here, there, w there wouldn't be anything. There'd just be like snow, just video static. But nature likes to make patterns. It comes naturally to nature. That's what it does. Computations like to create things. And uh, this is a good example. Anyway, um, let me say a little about ecology now. So, uh, what I want to say about ecology, well, the first thing I want to mention, there's, uh, when we have, a, uh, we have a system, you can give a system some sort of population value. Oh, this is called X, okay? And we can think of X ranging from a minimum of zero up to a maximum of one. So suppose we sort of normalize this. So if, in terms of people on Earth, that could be ranging between zero people and, oh, let's say 10 billion. It's not entirely clear what's the maximum number of people you could put on Earth. Uh, most, it's a political thing that people argue about too. They have different reasons for wanting to say it's higher or lower. But the value, I, I looked at, I Googled around on it for a little while, read a little bit, and the number that you hear the most tends to be around 10 billion. I think now we're up to six, okay? And I think uh, most predictions are, we'll rise up maybe close to 10 or maybe just up to eight, and then it'll level off. Uh, now, you could, you could view our population, in other words, you could, if you wanted to do a mathematical analysis on our populations, it's useful to think of the population as being a number x that's between 0, 0.0 and 1.0. And the reason we like to have it in this range is then we can do, look at a certain interesting function that I'll talk about in just a minute. So I'm going to think of population, you can think of this as really being a density number, you can think of this population density as being a number that ranges between um, zero and one. Where with the understanding that by one, where I, what I really mean is the most people there could be, and say that's 10 billion. Now, originally, th there's this thing called Malthus's Law. Malthus was one of the first people to think about how populations grow, or at least one of the first people to write about it in a mathematical way. And uh, the idea is we want to find some rule for finding what, what's the population at time n plus 1 going to be in terms of the population at time n. Okay, if we think of measuring, suppose every n is a year. So, and what's the population in the year 1986 in terms of the population in 1985. And one idea is that uh, it's always just going to be some number times last year's population. Now on Earth at present, that number is 1.01. .01. So Earth is growing, the population of Earth is growing at a rate of uh, 1% a year. Okay, so for every 100 people that were here this year, there'll be 101 people next year. Now, um, we know this can't go on forever because if you raise, if I raise like 1.01 .01 to the 70th, I get two. So if you, you grow at 1% a year, I think 70 is right, I'd have to check that. In 70 years, you've doubled. Another 70, you've got four times. And we're, we're at a six now, and 
you know, if you get more than 10 billion, things are going to get uncomfortable. And not uncomfortable in the sense of, you know, a little unpleasant. Uncomfortable in the sense of famine, in the sense of plague, in the sense of war. Where at some point, you know, if you squeeze too many people together, they start killing each other. They get sick. There's not enough food. So it, we know it can't go up forever. So Malthus's rule, in other words, this rule is a little too simple. You can't just have the new x is equal to a times the old x. And so then there was this guy um, called Verhulst. Or not, yeah, was he called Verhulst? Uh, I think so. Uh, he invented the, the logistic map. Um, did you read that book? Did I call him? Did I say his name was Verhulst? The good book. The good book. <laughs> this book. My book. I've gotten into chapter three. Okay. The good book. Okay, let us turn to the good book, fellow citizens. <laughs> Let's see, what was this guy? Yeah, it was for Holst. He was a Belgian. He was a mathematics professor at the Royal Military College in Brussels. And he came up with this rule, and he said the, the idea is maybe the new X, instead of just being A, times the old x, let's just, instead of using n and plus one, let's just say new x is equal to a times x, he said it's x times one minus x. Now what is the one minus x doing for me there? Well remember, I'm thinking of x as having a range between zero and one. So if x gets up near one, one as x goes from zero to one, one minus x goes from one up to zero. And so the point is, as uh, this is actually a parabola, okay? The parabola of this form. Okay, so uh, when your x is too close to one, there's going to be this big die-off factor. That's what the one minus x is, and then the new x isn't going to be very big. Now, um, this this is a famous. Sometimes they shorten this by just saying new x is equal to the logistic of A and X, where logistic stands for A times X times 1 minus X. Why logistic? Well, for Hope's part of military college, and logistic is a word that military people like, okay, so I guess that's why I used it. It means having to do with how do you take care of an army, how do you feed them, you know, clothe them, house them, and uh, the logistics would be as your population approaches 10 billion, the logistics of taking care of all those people gets harder and harder. And that's, that's kind of what the 1 minus x is doing for you there. Now, the logistic map is a, it's, it's a really famous function. It's maybe the most famous function uh, of the last 20 or 30 years in mathematics because the logistic map leads to chaos. It's the first place where chaos mathematical chaos was observed. And uh, the reason being, uh, I have a, a program for demoing that. Um, maybe I'll see if I can fire it up. It's called Chaos. It's a program I wrote uh, or worked on with some other guys when I was at Autodesk. Um, 
Let's see if I can find it in my computer here. So let's see. I'll look in the science directory. And this is something you can also download from uh, the website. Now let's sort this by uh, sort them by type, and let's look for bat files. And uh, there we go. I think it's, uh, I guess it's a track that bat. It's amazing this still runs. We wrote this before Windows. Uh, maybe I shouldn't speak too soon. Uh, this is a DOS program. And we had this graphic shell that would pop up. Oh yeah, there it is. Okay, it's not showing up on my screen, but it's showing up up there. Well, that'll do. So I want to go to types. Uh, I want to go to logistic map. Okay. And I want to accept. Okay. And it, huh? Yeah. This is a. Uh, let's see. But I want to view. I want to view this in a certain way. Uh, I can't remember how to use the menus really well. Uh, let's see. Type, oh, logistic pulse. Yeah, that's what I want to see. Okay. Now, uh, what I'm doing now, I'm making the A parameter bigger. And what you're seeing in the, the top row, there we go. So, uh, so it's running, it feeds in here, it goes down here, it goes down here. This is the oscillations over generations with given values of A. So the low values of A, so if I keep uh, repeating, I take any start value and I do A times X times 1 minus X. And for low values of A, you end up with a constant value. And that's all that people saw with logistic maps for a long time. And then uh, in this, I think it was the 60s, this guy called Rollo May, he noticed uh, you could observe certain populations of like like fish in a pond. And one year there'd be 20 fish, the next year there'd be 300 of them, the next year there'd be 30, the next year there'd be 30, the next year there'd be 200, the next year there'd be 10, then there'd be 20, then there'd be 50, then there'd be 70, then there'd be five. It's just this really wild oscillations. And he was like, well, nobody's bothering these fish. You know, it's, we've got it hidden. Well, why is it varying like that? And then it turned out, if you're obeying a logistic map with a high value of A, you get chaotic oscillations. So I'm going to crank A up a little bit higher here now. So this is the logistic pulse version of the map. Now, as it gets higher, we get what's called bifurcations. So first we just had a two values. Now it's oscillating between four values. Now, uh, okay, now we've reached the zone where it's chaotic. Okay, so. Um, There's no real pattern here. Okay, in other words, it's got these. Uh, it's, it's quite unpredictable. Okay, so and this is this is what we like to see. This is a class four computation. Okay, so it's it's going along here, and uh, so that's that's good. Uh, 
And there's a, a lot of interesting stuff about this map. Uh, logistic. Uh, there's different ways to look at it. It's, it's sort of a, it's a whole science in itself. Uh, okay. But let's just leave that for now. I don't want to get into it any more than that right now. Um, anyway, the, so what, what we found was that, and so this is a different way of looking at the same thing. This is another sequence of values for a low A. Uh, this is called the logistic uh, hump map. You get a few values, then for larger A's, we get uh, this chaotic number of values. Huh? Well, this is the map in action. This is the sort of, this is the graph of uh, A times A times X times 1 minus X. That's what that hump is. We feed in an X. It goes up here. That's the new value. Then we go across to the line Y equals X. And then we say, okay, that's that. That's that X value. Then we, we apply the function again. We go up to here. We go over to the, this line. We drop down and find the curve. And it's a way of actually tracing the series of values on one picture. There's one other way to show them all at once, and that's the uh, logistic map. That's this uh, this thing, which uh, oh well. But that's I don't want really, to. Huh? Oh, in the hump thing? It's a little like looking for a root. It, yeah, it's, it's never reaching a fixed point. If you can find a place where x equals a times x times 1 minus x, then you've found a fixed point, okay? But it turns out uh, for larger values of a, there isn't any such point. And for smaller values of A, then there would be uh, some places where you can find pairs that oscillate back and forth. Okay. Um, let's see. I've been talking for almost an hour now. Uh, so let me sort of wrap it up for the moment. The, the thing, uh, let's, let's do one more thing about getting Jabotinsky's scrolls out of these. Uh, this guy, Ralph Abraham, some of you might know him. He's a professor from UC Santa Cruz. He was one of the early chaos theory people. And he had an idea. He said, why don't I do a cellular automaton and run a logistic map inside each cell? So let's think of a bunch of cells. And each cell has a population with a number between 0 and 1. And let's update that population according to the logistic map. And then let's see uh, what happens. And uh, well. What happens, as you know, from the kinds of things I like, is going to be Jabotinsky scrolls, okay? And uh, there's uh, and it works particularly well if you have two species, and that comes back to something I showed you a little while ago. There's a 2D. Uh, actually, I think uh, Ralph did it wrong. I've talked to him about this. And uh, we don't see eye to eye on this. Uh, but uh, 
So this is his uh, his cellular dynamica, and what he's got, he's actually got um, each cell has a uh, a number between zero and one in it, and each cell is averaging with its neighbors and then applying the logistic map. And actually, that's the right way to do it, to average first. But Ralph is, in my humble opinion, doing it wrong. He's averaging second. And because of that, you see these strings on top of the world? Those are domains. This is like this very sort of chaotically behaving rule. It's, uh, if you look at it in 3D, you can see it's, uh, it's kind of foobar in that. Uh, this is not like very physical looking. You usually don't see physical systems acting like this. I mean, it's just, it's, huh? It's like what? Is it like flames? Well, it's a little too rhythmic. It's just, it's totally out of sync with itself. And, uh, but you are getting the scrolls, which is kind of nice. Um, the reason the display looks nice, uh, what I'm displaying is actually the average uh, difference between each cell and its neighbors. So it comes out pretty well. It, it works nicer, but I will say if I do it what I consider the right way, I haven't been able to get scrolls with just one species. So maybe I'm not so smart after all. But what I did find, I had something, what I call the double logistic rule. And there, See, this is now, we're looking at in 3D, and this is reasonable looking. This doesn't look unnatural. This looks like something you might see in nature, okay? And what we're doing here, we've got two species. Each species is obeying the logistic map, but it's also, we've got this other term. So X is this, then suppose X is the predator, and then we also put a times Y here. So X is like the foxes, so the foxes reproduce. The more foxes there are, the more foxes are next generation. If there's too many foxes, they're dying off. If there's a lot of rabbits, the foxes are increasing. And the rabbits, they have some other parameter, B times rabbit, minus one rabbit, times one minus X. So the rabbits, uh, if there's a lot of X, that's bad for the rabbits, okay? So if X is near one, that reduces the rabbits. So we've got coupled these two logistic maps. And here I'm doing what I consider the right thing, which is first averaging, then applying the rule. Or maybe I have it the other way around. Um, I know that this, it's, when you write these, when you describe these rules in words, it sounds, you know, the same one way or another. But when you write the code, it turns out to be a big deal, whether you first do the averaging step or the reacting step. And that turns out to be important. And I can't remember exactly which is the right way, but I, I say it in the book. Okay, so this is another example of uh, these nice forms emerging. And this is something you see in populations. This would be, there'd be like waves of foxes moving across the landscape or waves of rabbits moving across. And we do see things like that when we track uh, species. We see these kinds of scroll patterns. Okay, so. Uh, that's it about biology today. Next week, I'll talk about artificial life. Uh, that's the second part of chapter three, and evolution. And so we'll leave that for next week. But uh, I think that's all I'm going to say for now. 
then we can take our break and uh, we can look at your proposals.